welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Towns and cities all across America are increasingly finding themselves at the front lines in protecting their citizens from the impacts of climate change. Fortunately, a number of tools just waiting to be used can already be found in many local communities' toolbox. Welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Dominic Chicatano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. Today, I'm here with Jonathan Rosenblum, a professor of law at Vermont Law School who specializes in land use, climate change, and local sustainability. Jonathan is the co-author of two textbooks, and his scholarship has been published in a number of legal periodicals. He is also the executive director of the Sustainable Development Code, or SDC, a model land use code designed to provide local governments with the best sustainability practices in land use. Jonathan's new book, Remarkable Cities and the Fight Against Climate Change, 43 Recommendations to Reduce Greenhouse Gases in the Communities that Adopted Them, was published this spring with ELI Press. It focuses on concrete approaches local governments can use to directly reduce greenhouse gases or bolster natural ecosystems that absorb greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, like forests and wetlands. Something unique about his book is that each recommendation provides four to 10 examples of communities that have actually adopted the specific measure, illustrating how that recommendation looks in practice. Today, Jonathan and I are going to talk about his new book and the range of ways in which local communities can utilize enacted ordinances to mitigate climate change while increasing their capacity to respond and adapt to its most harmful consequences. Thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. Thanks, Dominic. It's my pleasure. So I guess before we get into the, the meat of your book, I, I'd like to hear a little bit about sort of how the idea arose and how you came up with, yeah, how you came up with the idea to write this book. Yeah, so this book is really a collaborative project, and it's part of a larger project called the Sustainable Development Code. The SDC is a national interdisciplinary project to help communities identify and implement laws that will result in the most sustainable and resilient future for them. So we work with planners, lawyers, architects, economists, and others from across the country with the aim to help all local governments, regardless of their size or budget, adapt to new challenges and uncertainty as they arise to ensure better economically uh, conscious and environmentally conscious and socially equitable design and development. So the SDC's predominant focus is building out this fully searchable website, uh, www.sustainablecitycode.org. But to reach as many communities as possible, we were looking at a variety of, of avenues and including implementation, seminars, webinars, and this book and our collaboration with ELI on it, it was really an ideal fit. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so in the preface to your book, you talk a little bit about federal inaction on issues like climate change. Um, how has this um, more or less shifted sort of the burden to local communities to confront this and other big environmental problems. Um, in, in other words, why is the SDC's role kind of critically important right now as the federal government backs away from action on these problems? Well, I think many local governments are finding themselves between a rock and a hard place in the sense that they are facing significant uncertainty. And that uncertainty is coming from a variety of, of places, including 
uh, social unrest, racial injustice. We're looking at issues involving the coronavirus and also uncertainty across environmental issues, biodiversity, climate change, and others. But it's the, the sort of the other side of that, though, too, is that they have crunching budgets and lack of resources. So how do they evolve and how do they adapt to these, these challenges as they come up? Compounding that, of course, is the challenge that the federal government has been pulling back. And I'd say there's kind of four, particularly in the last three and a half years, there's four reasons why local governments are really kind of finding themselves now in a particularly uh, precarious situation. First of all, federal policy changes. We're seeing them pull back from climate mitigation on a whole host of fronts. Um, Trump has officially rolled back 60 environmental policies as indicated by the New York Times recently, and 34 more are in progress. Some of those are critical to local governments and mitigation, um, but others are just significant in terms of climate change, including the affordable clean energy rule, repealing President Obama's clean power plan, and the rolling back of the CAFE standards, which regulate uh, vehicles, um, while others just simply showed a disdain for science and others. So one is the pulling back of federal policy. Another is cutting federal funding for critical, lo critical local programs, such as the community development block grants and home investment partnerships. So we have you know, all these sort of these challenges and we have a, a lack of federal leadership in terms of policy. We have less dollars coming and then dollars are particularly important where some indications are that the coronavirus is going to have uh, an impact on local governments in the realm of three quarters of a trillion dollars. And so how local governments are gonna fill that gap is gonna further challenge their ability to adapt. Uh, but then including on top of all that, you just have some rhetoric coming out of the federal government that's sort of an authoritarian-like language in an attempt to force local governments to do bidding or chastising them for taking a variety of actions. Now, those are three reasons that are really putting pressure on local governments or shifting the balance of power away from the federal government. But what I find most encouraging is the fourth one, and that's that more and more communities and individuals are exploring the sort of the outer limits and the legal authority they have to act. So for example, while local governments for a long time didn't get involved with energy production, they're mostly just focusing on energy efficiency. We now see a whole host of local governments exercising authority over more production-based issues such as renewable energies and others. But I think this is a big shift, right? This is, this is local communities recognizing that they have something to protect. They have something that's important, that's part of them, that's part of their culture and their environment, and they wanna protect it even when the federal government pulls back from it. Thanks, Jonathan. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, maybe this is backpedaling a bit, but you mentioned um, some of the challenges that local communities are facing right now. You know, it sounds like um, budgets are strapped resources in general are low and they're they're also simultaneously being asked to regulate in areas that they haven't regulated in previously as you pointed out um, with regard to energy for example um how how are local communities kind of taking action on climate change locally uh just in spite of some of these challenges could you give some specific examples from your book sure yeah we're seeing some really exciting stuff coming out of local governments uh, for starters, we have a broad spectrum of, of, of issues that they're taking out. So on one hand, 
we see sort of generalized proclamations of being, let's say, 100% renewable. And we see this out of places like Burlington, Vermont, and uh, Boulder, Colorado, and others. That's on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, we have more technical regulations and ordinances coming that are coming down. That's really what we're focusing on with this book. It's focusing on kind of looking at concrete steps to implement and change laws to reduce greenhouse gases. So in looking at that technical aspect, we look at it in this book from basically soup to nuts um, in terms of the development code and the development process. So where in the development code and the development process is climate change impacted? And that could be climate mitigation or climate adaptation. So some really interesting things that we're seeing, I think, right now are zero net energy building requirements. This is a scenario where local governments are saying, if you want to develop this subdivision, let's say, all the houses or all the commercial or mixed-use building in this particular area has to be zero net energy, meaning it is producing as much energy as it is using. Now, that can that leaves it up to the developer as to whether or not they want to lock the house in in sort of a passive house where it's using very little energy and have a small solar panel, or they can build regular construction and have a large panel array, let's say. Um, so that's one. Another, though, is site orientation requirements. So here's a scenario where it's requiring the developer to organize all of the all the construction on the site in a way that the homeowner or the owner of a building can then just simply come on and the building is ready, solar ready to put the solar panels on. We're seeing changes in parking structures. We're seeing changes in what kind of vegetation. So increasing of sinks, whether it's in trees or permeable pavement. We're also seeing requirements in terms of increased um, protection, increased rather um, window insulation. And of course, we've been looking at appliances for many years, but local governments are getting much more serious about that as well in terms of their requirements. So again, really across the board, we're seeing local governments look at development and development code and identify places where they can address climate change. So when local governments are enacting ordinances on things like net zero buildings, which are pretty new um, as far as as far as I'm aware of, are they are they drawing inspiration at all from federal policymaking or are local governments really sort of in uncharted territory here and kind of figuring out how they can take action on these issues in a way that fits um, their kind of regulatory framework? That's a great question. So in many of these areas, local governments are able to tap into federal and state previous examples or inspiration. But in many of these scenarios, federal and state governments never addressed these issues, meaning that this was a particular legal issue that had been at the local level for decades and remained such. Um, and so something like floor area ratios, this is a, a technical way in which local governments govern how big a house can be. Floor area ratios are something that the state and federal government never re regulated. So local governments are going back into their codes and saying, okay, well, when we regulate based on floor area ratios, what are the impacts we're having? Well, this is a, I think this is a really um, kind of classic example of local governments looking at the code that they have before them and how they can reform it. So floor area ratios regulated based on a two-dimensional on, on two dimensions, length and width. But as we know, when we go to height, when we go to heat or cool a space, 
the height is also critical, right? So you could have a space that is eight by 10 and 10 feet high, or you could have a space that's eight by 10 and 20 feet high. And the 20 foot height space is going to cost a whole lot more to cool and heat. And so local governments are going back in, they're looking at floor area ratio and saying, wait a second, let's no longer just regulate this based on width and length. Let's also regulate it based on height. So we're reducing the amount of energy that's needed to heat or cool this particular building. That is, a, as I said, it's, it's, it's hyper-technical in a way relevant to, to land use, um, but I think that the point is clear in that example, and that's that, that these are issues that the federal and state government were never really looking at anyway. But at the same time, local governments had them in place, and they weren't really looking at them in terms of how they impact climate change. But they're very much doing that today. And that's, again, what this book is kind of designed to do is point out those areas in the code where we can make these improvements. That makes sense. And and you talk about, I guess, sort of, correct me if I'm wrong, but three different ways that um, that communities can look into the code for improvements or can kind of reference the code. And um, those are to remove code barriers, uh, create incentives, and remove regulatory gaps. I think it's important when talking about the the sort of the structure that we have for the book, which is, as you mentioned, to remove code barriers, to create incentives and fill regulatory gaps, to just pan back first, see that that three-part structure is part of a larger three-prong method. And the the idea with our three-prong method is to basically take politics out of the climate equation. Um, And I think that what we've done is we've taken these three methods, and I'll point them out in just a second, and really kind of direct them at saying, these are challenges that operate outside of politics. And so we need to address them. And so the first way in which we do this, two chapters as part of the Sustainable Development Code, many of them are relevant to climate change. And they include climate mitigation, which is directly on point, but they also include several subchapters on energy, solar energy, wind energy, energy efficiency. They also they'll include things like pedestrian mobility. So whether we're talking about low impact development for stormwater management, or we're talking about vegetation. But then in addition to those, we're also looking at climate adaptation. So we have a chapter on wildfires. We have a chapter on flooding. And my point here is that given that there's this menu of 32 chapters, I feel like if you're any jurisdiction in the United States, you can come to this and identify some challenge that your community is facing, regardless of politics, right? If you don't wanna talk about climate mitigation, well, let's talk about the wildfires that you're facing, or let's talk about the flooding that you're facing, that kind of thing. So that's one method. The second method is the one that you've identified, and that's the remove, remove code barriers. So the question here is what in your existing code is stopping you from becoming more sustainable or from reducing greenhouse gases or from uh, alleviating flooding concerns. So in the first method, if you identify your concern, in the second method, you're saying, okay, well, what in our existing code is exacerbating the situation? Let's remove that. And I'll get to some examples in just a second. Let me just run through the third method. And that's that with each of our examples, as you noted at the outset, we have four, 10, concrete examples where local governments have already adopted these recommendations. And so there's kind of a peer pressure there. Who else has done this? What have they done? Let's get that information. Let's start to implement it. So some of the, some of the, the sort of the, 
the examples that we're seeing out there, again, are hyper-technical because these are issues that are already embedded in the code. The floor area ratio calculation was a good example of that, but we're seeing many others, right? We're seeing maximum lot sizes being reduced to minimum. I'm sorry, we're seeing minimum lot sizes rather being flipped and making a maximum lot sizes. We're seeing um, maximum house sizes be implemented as well. So instead of saying, if you wanna build a house in this subdivision, it has to be 4,000 square feet. They're flipping that on its head and saying, no, 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 the maximum square footage here is 2,000 square feet. We're seeing local governments permit uh, um, accessory dwelling units, allowing live work units, which is particularly relevant in this coronavirus time, and allowing tiny homes. All of these things were prohibited under many codes, but they help alleviate not only housing pressures, but they help mitigate greenhouse gases under certain circumstances. We're seeing estimates are that we're going to have a population boom of anywhere between 50 and 75 million people in the next 20 to 30 years. That's going to require a massive amount of development. If we develop under existing codes, what we're going to see is the amount of green space about the size of Kentucky and Indiana combined get taken offline for housing development. So again, what, you know, what, what, what this requires us to do is to rethink these codes so that we're not continuing to sprawl out. Aside from the fact that we'll lose these green fields, local governments are also finding that the more they sprawl out, the more expensive things become, the more segregated the community becomes, the loss of community as well as we spread out. Um, and this was greatly documented in a book called Bowling Alone. Um, but so these create these challenges that I think many local governments are looking at and saying, this is not the community we want, right? And many individuals and communities are looking at this and saying, this is not the lifestyle we want, right? We want to be in a place where we can walk around. We want to be in a place where there are trees. We want to be in a place where we can communicate with each other um, and that's safe. Um, and so I think we're seeing a sea change and it's based on, again, a lot of different legal impacts, but a lot of social and environmental qualities as well. So Jonathan, it sounds kind of as though if, if you know, the country's communities proceed with development unfettered and, and unchanged in any way, um, that we're gonna lose a whole lot of green space here. Um, you know, and green spaces, as we know, going to be ever more important with things like climate change in terms of disaster resilience, um, and also just as places where people can interact and sort of enjoy nature. Um, how are communities working to either conserve green spaces that are existing or create new green space? Um, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, Dominic, you know, this in many ways, this goes back to, to something we were talking about earlier. And that's this idea of Maybe we don't want to talk about climate change, but we can talk about flooding. And I think a lot of local governments are approaching sinks from the flooding perspective in the sense that flooding has uh, obviously property damage and concerns for life, uh, human life. Um, but also um, stormwater management is expensive for local governments. And so I think they're really looking at a lot of different creative ways to increase vegetation. And some of the interesting ways that we're seeing we can break out by uh, two different ways. I'd say one is kind of protecting green space 
But the other we're seeing is actually growing green space. So sort of afforestation or uh, afforestation version in the wetlands area. And so let me run through some of these that are really interesting, I think, out there. You know, in terms of protecting green space, we're seeing some really interesting things like local governments are having significant setbacks from sensitive habitats to protect water quality. Um, these are all laid out in the in the book as well. We're seeing um, parking maximums. So instead of requiring a certain amount of minimum parking, we're putting caps or we're requiring no parking at all. We're seeing vegetation protection areas. So these are areas that local governments are identifying by, let's say, a species or a natural area, or they're even creating these vegetation protection areas and waiting to plop them down. They call them floating zones, plop them down where relevant. We're seeing cluster zones where local governments are saying, okay, if you want to subdivide this 100-acre lot, you can do so, but you're going to have to put all the housing in this five-acre portion and leave 85 acres or 95 acres uh, as a sort of protection area. Um, and so this, those are some of the protecting green space areas that we're seeing. But the other one that I find particularly interesting and important are local governments that are looking to grow green spaces. So looking to really create these things in a more significant way than is on the location right now. And so here we're seeing stuff like increases in tree canopy cover. Pretty typical that local governments will have a tree mitigation ordinance. And they're usually something like if you cut down a tree 12 inches at breast height, you have to replace it with an equivalent 12 inches across the board, but usually it allows for like three, tre three trees at four inches or something along those lines, right? But now we're seeing much more aggressive mitigation ordinances. So some like there's one out of Ventura County in California that's requiring developers to plant 10 trees for every one removed. Um, Baltimore, Maryland has some really wow. interesting afforestation requirements where it's saying if you move to the site, you actually have to increase the tree canopy cover. So green roofing, green roofing is another place where we're, we're seeing some improvements on taking, con taking the sort of pervious surface back for green spaces, um, as well as kind of driveways and sidewalks and other things. So some really interesting stuff in trying to aforest suburban and urban areas. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, it sounds like with regard to green space, you know, you said afforestation and and a variety of um, sort of ordinance types that communities are working on. It, it sounds like communities have options that they can kind of tailor to their specific needs. Um, you sort of described your book as kind of a menu for communities to find the actions that are most appropriate for their jurisdiction. Um, you've touched on this a bit, but can you talk a little bit about, about what you mean by that? Um, how does the book and its structure sort of allow communities to take what's useful to, um, for them and maybe leave what's less so? Yeah, this is one of the things that was really important to the Sustainable Development Code as we were designing it over the past four or five years ago, four or five past years, although it's really been a project that's been in the works for about 12 years. And then much of this is reflected in the book. But the idea is that, again, we have these 39,000 local governments, and they're all different in different ways, and they're all struggling with different challenges, whether it's the way they're experiencing the coronavirus or the way they're experiencing um, racial injustice and unrest, 
or the way most relevant here, the way that they're experiencing uh, climate change issues, climate justice issues, environmental justice issues, and struggling with those. And so what we really wanted to do with the book and with the code generally is to provide a menu of options to say, if this is what your local government is facing, here are some options for you. And let's figure out what best works for your community because it's really not a one size fits all, right? I mean, that's the beauty of local governments is that each, each place has its own place, has its own environments, has its own character, has its own culture. And we don't want to treat everyone the same. And we don't want to treat every local government jurisdiction the same because we'll lose that kind of beauty and diversity. Uh, and so we thought it was really important for us to, to kind of provide these options so that communities could come, identify what is most important to them, identify what is really harming their jurisdiction, and then make it better based on uh, sort of an iterative process with the community. And we're glad to always help with those issues as well. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so you kind of touched a little bit there on current events, you know, with um, COVID-19 and racial justice, two of two topics that I think are on most people's minds right now, and rightfully so. Um, if you could talk a little bit on this to sort of um, close out our podcast today, uh, how do you how do you see these two factors, and I guess current events you know, more broadly, um, underscoring certain challenges or opportunities for local development? Um, what are the implications there? Well, I think the challenges are great, right? They are massive for local governments on on these two in particular fronts, and and the third being climate change. But the two fronts are. Um, COVID is putting great strain on local governments, right? So it's putting strain in terms of individual mental health. Um, it's also putting great strains on budgets, as I mentioned earlier. Many local governments are feeling shortfalls. A number of local governments like Dayton, Ohio, have put furloughs on, uh, or furloughed rather a number of, of city employees. Um, but it's also greatly impacting public services. Right, the health individuals, education, policing are all greatly strained by COVID. And so um, really local governments are facing economic pressure and service pressure through coronavirus. And it's not going to improve uh, immediately. Even if even once there is a vaccine, there's going to be a significant time of transition in terms of the way we were living our lives and the way we intend to live our lives in the future. And I'll just give one small example. We were already over in terms of the amount of sales, uh, retail sales property that are needed in the United States. Estimates are about 25% more capacity than we need. Well, that was before COVID hit. And I think many local governments are gonna come back and they're gonna see all sorts of vacancies in, in terms of their retail, retail space. The question is, what do we do with that? That's just one small example, but there are many of these throughout codes and land use that COVID is bringing up. The second, is the racial injustice that we um, have in the United States and in local governments. This is particularly relevant because many of the environmental rollbacks we've seen from the federal government will have and are having a disproportionate impact on individuals of color. You know, For example, the Trump administration recently proposed rolling back the National Environmental Policy Act, it's often called NEPA. Um, for decades, this law has served as one of the few protections for minority and poor neighborhoods from having federal projects destroy communities and cultures. This was something that happened, for example, in Rondo, St. Paul, 
before NEPA. Um, and so I think this is going to be another big challenge for local governments. Um, of course, it already is. And we're seeing the, the sort of the unrest um, happen across the country. Uh, but this, this, this sort of combination of environmental justice, climate justice, um, spatial justice, justice design, design justice, these are all critical issues that local governments are going to be struggling with um, for the next uh, certainly the immediate future, but going on into the future. And so, you know, if we kind of come now full circle to what the SDC, the Sustainable Development Code's role in all of this is, is that these two events, COVID and, and the recent, the recent um, events, they both indicate that there is a significant amount of uncertainty that face local governments. Um, and the code is designed to provide options to local governments that they can quickly adapt to scenarios. You know, we've talked mostly about climate change here, but there is a very significant portion of the Sustainable Development Code that focuses on social uh, equity. Um, and so we have a specific, we have a number of specific chapters on this issue, uh, but it's also riddled throughout the code. Uh, and so again, the idea behind this book is to provide local governments who don't have the budget to quickly adapt to get the information they need and to shift uh, to improve their codes and to make their communities more sustainable moving forward. Jonathan, um, thank you. This has been it's been very insightful. Lots of rich detail for people to explore um, further in your book. Again, Jonathan's book, um, which was created as part of the SDC project, is called Remarkable Cities and the Fight Against Climate Change, 43 Recommendations to Reduce Greenhouse Gases in the Communities that Adopted Them. Um, you can check out the episode description for links to learn more or to purchase a copy of Jonathan's book. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Dominic. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.